On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. That little episode in the Gospel of Mark is one of the more notorious stories about Jesus these days. It is a story that lies behind the persistent God hates figs meme and is held up as an example of the ridiculousness that can sometimes be found in the Bible and by extension the ridiculousness of those who would take the Bible seriously. I have long been annoyed that this contemporary critique of this passage completely misunderstands the story and why it is there in the gospel at all. But what can be done about that? I truly believe that a narrative approach can often be the best way to get a new perspective on misunderstood biblical texts, so I'm going to give it a try in this month's episode. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 4.3 God is actually okay with figs. It was considered to be essential for every Jew to attend the Passover festival in Jerusalem. Every year, tens of thousands of pilgrims would descend upon the city, overwhelming its streets, its markets, and latrines. But while those who lived in close proximity to the city did often manage to make it every year, the same could not be said of every Jew. There were many Jews who had settled in distant cities spread throughout the empire. Many of them were wealthy, but they were also very busy and could hardly afford the weeks or even months of travel to make an annual Passover pilgrimage. And then there were the Galileans. They lived closer, to be sure, but the journey for them down to Jerusalem was still long and perilous. They were also treated badly by the Judeans, who laughed at their accents and their cultural ways. Most Galilean Jews only rarely made the trip. And that was why, though they had been traveling around Galilee together for more than a year, Jesus and his friends had never made a Passover pilgrimage together. They had arrived near Jerusalem only yesterday, staying with a family that had offered hospitality to the teacher in Bethany, just outside of the city. They arose early in the morning, just as the sun was rising, and prepared to set off towards the city without even pausing to break their fast.
the disciples spoke with great excitement together. Some of them had never been to the city of Jerusalem before. But those who had seen the temple before, the temple that they could just now see as they began to descend from the Mount of Olives, were describing the place in glowing terms. They spoke of the ongoing construction projects and of the massive stones that were being put into place all over the Temple Mount. It was a wonder of architecture and engineering such as they had never seen in their lives before and would never see again. The disciples fell into awe as the walls of the city drew nearer and nearer. Jesus, for his part, was quieter. The temple complex was, without question, impressive. He could understand why his friends were swept away in their admiration, but he could also not stop thinking about the dark side of the temple and its story. He had spent many months traveling all over Galilee. He had talked to so many people, and one overwhelming theme had come out of nearly every conversation. The temple tax was bleeding them dry. The temple renovation had been underway for decades. It had begun before Jesus himself was born as a project of King Herod, the one who called himself Great. What's more, the work would not likely be completed for decades, and all the time the work had been funded on the backs of the people. The temple tax fell hardest on those who could afford it least. The people of Galilee, who could barely afford to visit the temple in all their lifetimes, probably felt the burden most of all. As Jesus looked upon the temple now, he could not help but wonder what all of those ruinous taxes were accomplishing. Were massive stones and engineering feats sufficient reasons to destroy the lives of thousands upon thousands of poor Galilean peasants? Was that what a temple was for? To make the people awestruck into submission? Did it exist only to draw the people together so that wealthy investors could fleece them of whatever little they had left? If there had to be temples, and Jesus wasn't entirely sure that they were necessary, surely they should be there in order to bring some benefit to the people, to create opportunity and blessing. Surely a temple should be like a, a tree that produces good fruit, which it offers to all the people who have any need of it. What was the use of a temple that did not do that? So Jesus was quietly brooding on all of those questions and wondering how he could help his friends to see beyond the impressiveness of a huge temple complex and giant stones. And that is when he noticed a fig tree on the path just ahead of them. Can I just say here that Jesus 
was not an idiot? Yes, his background was not in farming. But he knew just as well as anybody when figs are in season and when they aren't. The tree that lay on the path ahead had plenty of leaves, but he knew that there would be no fruit that was ready to be eaten. As he looked a little closer, he also noticed something else. Whatever else he was, Jesus was a fantastic observer of the world, and he noticed that there was something about the tree that was not quite right, but that wasn't apparent if you didn't look closely. Suddenly, Jesus realized that he had a way to make his friends look a little differently at the place and importance of the temple institution. He interrupted their glowing talk about the temple. Guys, he said, I don't know about you, but I am absolutely famished. I think I really could have used a breakfast this morning. He gestured toward the tree ahead of them. Don't you think that a few nice ripe figs would taste pretty good right now? The disciples' response was more or less what you might expect from anyone who hears somebody that they greatly esteem and respect say something completely ridiculous. They knew when figs were ripe too, but they didn't want to say anything. They murmured quietly that they too were hungry, but not wanting to correct him, they merely looked at one another with questions on their faces. When they all arrived at the fig tree, which anyone could see was completely barren of figs, Jesus was ready to give one of the performances of his life. He raged and he fumed at the tree. You had one job, one job, tree. You are supposed to produce fruit to nourish the people of this country where you have been planted and you can't even produce one fig for a hungry traveler. I curse you. I damn you to destruction. May no one ever benefit from you ever again. Jesus' friends, of course, didn't know what to do about this kind of behavior. They looked at each other with wide eyes. They shrugged, but none of them would dare to speak up or even had a clue what he would say if he did. Eventually, Jesus' anger seemingly spent. The group just moved on awkwardly and in silence. The next morning, the disciples were anything but silent as the group followed the same route into the city once again. Everything that they had seen and heard in Jerusalem yesterday had given them much to discuss. Those who had never attended a Passover before had been surprised by many things that had happened during the day. They had been surprised, for example, by the extraordinarily high level of security. It made sense when you thought about it, but it was unexpected when you didn't. 
The festival of the Passover was a celebration of the time when the God of Israel had set his people free from slavery. It contained within it an implicit promise that God would never allow his people to be enslaved again. They should serve no one apart from the Lord. But freedom from slavery was a rather touchy thing to celebrate these days. As Roman policy drove the people further and further into debt, which often resulted in those who could not pay being sold into slavery. Like every place else in the Roman Empire, slave populations in Judea were very much on the rise. The Romans were no fools, and they realized that the people would be all the more inclined to be rebellious during the Passover, and so they descended on the city in force. Everywhere you looked, wherever you went, there were Roman patrols and guards. The only exception was within the temple complex itself. The Romans, again no fools, had learned that they dare not show their colors or standards in that place, as it would only serve to inflame the passions of the people. Nevertheless, even within the temple, the tension was so thick that you could cut it with a knife. There were no Roman guards, but the temple police were still very much on edge. Given all this surveillance, the disciples were shocked when Jesus actually began to cause a disturbance. He didn't do it at the center of attention, the place near the great altar where the guards were all concentrated, but rather just near the entrance, in a place that was largely neglected by both the Romans and the temple guards. As the people entered, they had to exchange their money. The Roman money that was used for everyday exchange was prohibited for use within the temple complex because it bore upon it the image of the emperor, whom the Romans blasphemously claimed to be a god. And so a temple currency had been created to make transactions possible within the temple precincts, and tables were set up for people to make the exchange. Connected to that, of course, was a market for the sale of sacrificial animals because most worshippers who made the long journey could not bring their own animals for sacrifice. So, despite the fact that it was not considered to be a central part of the temple, this marketplace was absolutely vital to the functioning of the entire complex. Jesus obviously realized this, and so it was here that he created a disturbance, overturning tables and scattering coins upon the pavement, and then opening cages and allowing the animals to escape. As you can imagine, chaos quickly ensued, especially as bystanders scrambled to pick up coins and to chase down fleeing animals. But it still took a while for the guard to respond. And so Jesus climbed atop one of the still-standing tables 
while his horrified disciples looked on. You had one job, one job, Temple. You are supposed to produce fruit to nourish the people of this country where you have been built. And yet you produce nothing for those who need your help most. I curse you. I damn you to destruction. May no one ever benefit from you ever again. The words had seemed familiar to the disciples. Where had they heard them before? Jesus did have a habit of repeating certain sayings and stories to various audiences, changing them up according to the circumstances, but they couldn't quite place where they'd heard him say this one. Of course, it hit them all the next morning. When they came to a rise in the path, and saw the fig tree they had passed the previous morning. The tree was indeed in a bad state. After a day in the hot sun, the leaves were visibly wilting. Though there was still some hope that the tree might be revived if its owner gave it a little bit of tender loving care, it certainly was easy enough to believe that it might well not live long enough to produce any figs. That, in itself, was a marvel for the disciples. But what struck them more, of course, was the realization that Jesus had cursed this tree with the very same words he had employed while speaking in the temple. They didn't need an explanation for that. It was immediately clear to them all. They weren't quite ready to talk about the frightening implications of it, and so instead the group fell into a discussion about faith and what might be accomplished through it. But even as they eagerly engaged in that discussion, the disciples wondered if the curse that Jesus had pronounced against the fig tree had not really been about the fig tree? Was the aftermath of that curse, as stark as it was, not really about the fig tree either? When, many years later, a man named Mark was struggling to come to terms with the actual destruction of the great temple in Jerusalem, and how it was reduced to rubble very shortly after the great building project that had be begun by Herod the Great had been completed, he remembered a story of a fig tree that had been passed down to him, and he wondered too. Did Jesus really get mad at a fig tree because it didn't produce any fruit when the fruit was out of season? 
So mad, in fact, that he cursed it to death? Could he really get that cranky when he was hungry in the morning? Probably not. If you read the Gospel of Mark very carefully, it is actually pretty obvious that that story is not there simply as a record of something that Jesus did. The story is pretty obviously a literary construction by the Gospel writer, and that is how he meant us to understand it. There is a literary device that Mark employs at least six times in his Gospel. It has been called an intercalation by literary critics. I'll put links to all of the clear examples in the show notes. It's a very simple device, but Mark uses it to great effect. Basically, he starts one story, interrupts it in the middle with another, which he finishes, and then goes on to complete the first one. In one sense, it's just a simple storyteller's technique, but Mark uses it, as I say, to great effect. Every time he does it, there's a connection between the two stories. And it is like he is inviting the reader to ponder the two stories together and work out for themselves what that connection is. So here is what I suspect happened, and I'm not alone. Many biblical scholars have come to very similar conclusions. The anonymous author of this gospel, who we call Mark, for convenience sake, wanted to say something about the meaning of the disturbance that Jesus caused in the temple. But, for whatever reason, he didn't want to spell out what Jesus was trying to accomplish. So he made use of an intercalation. He wants us to find the meaning of the disturbance in the temple in the story of the fig tree. I say that the fig tree incident likely didn't happen because it's pretty obvious that Mark constructed the story. He took some of Jesus' parables and sayings about fig trees and fruit trees that were already known, parables and sayings that actually still exist elsewhere in the Gospels, and turned them into a narrative about something that happened to Jesus. And I know that I just heard some of you say, wait a minute, did he just say that Mark intentionally included a story about Jesus in his gospel that he knew hadn't actually happened? Wouldn't that make him a really bad historian? Well, yes, that would probably make him a bad historian. That's why it's a good thing Mark wasn't writing a history. He was writing a gospel. And a gospel is a kind of literature that is far more concerned with getting the truth about its main character, Jesus, across than it is with getting all of the facts and events straight. So, Mark intentionally inserted the incident at that point in his narrative and probably constructed it himself. He did it in order to say something important about the relationship of Jesus with the temple, but not really much of anything about Jesus' attitude towards fig trees. God doesn't hate figs. God is pretty much okay with figs.
That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Make sure you subscribe so you can get the next one at the end of next month. A great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. For a deeper dive into Mark's gospel and his use of intercalation, go to the show notes that have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. The theme music for this podcast is Ada. The mood music for this episode is Heavy Heart. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling the Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>